I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. There was a glow in the sky, as if great furnace doors were opened. But all the afternoon his eyes had looked on glamour, he had strayed in fairyland. The holidays were nearly done, and Lucian Taylor had gone out resolved to lose himself, to discover strange hills and prospects that he had never seen before. The air was still, breathless exhausted after heavy rain, and the clouds looked as if they had been moulded of lead. No breeze blew upon the hill, and down in the well of the valley not a dry leaf stirred, not a bough shook in all the dark January woods. That was a passage from the opening of Arthur Macken's The Hill of Dreams, which was originally published in 1907. One contemporary reviewer referred to the novel as the study rather than the story of a morbid temperament. Often regarded as Macken's masterpiece, this beautiful and idiosyncratic novel concerns the short life of a young writer, Lucian Taylor, and follows his journey from the Welsh countryside of his boyhood to the squalor of late 19th century London. In an attempt to commune with a reality beyond our own, a plane of existence accessible only to the artistic visionary, Lucian gives himself over entirely to this pursuit. But in transcending into that ethereal realm, it remains for us to decide whether he at last becomes a true adept or a martyr to aesthetic ideals. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this beguiling novel. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 16 of Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, man? Oh, yeah, as ever, very, very happy to be here. Glad to hear it, buddy. Today we're talking about The Hill of Dreams by Arthur Macken, which was originally published in 1907. This is actually our first book on request. This is something that was requested by Kevin Somerville, who's been listening to the podcast for for quite a while now and has been in touch from time to time. So it's nice to do that. I hope I'm not just speaking for myself here, Rob. I think it would be quite nice to hear from people if there are there are books that they're interested in us discussing or they'd like to see us feature on the show that you know they should get in touch with us. You can write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com or 
contact us on Twitter or Instagram as well. I'm not overstepping the bounds there, am I, Rob? Do you, no, just, no, no, like, no. I mean, no as way. You, as, <laughs> as you well know, like I read so much on recommendation. Like almost everything I read is on recommendation, and I think it's just fantastic to be able to have someone point you in the direction of something that you might not normally have picked up. And likewise with this podcast, there's there's so much I wouldn't have necessarily read that I've enjoyed immensely. So mm. yeah, absolutely. Oh, great. So how did you feel about reading this one, Rob? Yeah, it was a like a mixed. It was I think you know I've said to you already like I found it a bit hard, <laughs> like a bit of a slog at yeah. points, but but definitely well worth it. The language is is beautiful. Yeah, really overwhelming at times in its kind of dreamlike structure. So yeah, overall like I really 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 enjoyed it. I think it's a really special one. I mean, I've been planning to read this this book for so long it's nice for it to be requested actually it's one of those books that i felt like i was almost saving up for the right time to read it you know the the perfect circumstances of course they never really come but this book had that sort of aura for me i mean maybe it's something to do with the reverence surrounding arthur macken and the devotion that some readers feel towards him and the hill of dreams is often talked about as his masterpiece so it had grown this sort of halo around it do you know what i mean rob those those books that you could just you could anytime anytime you could pick up and and read one of them but something about the reverence in which they're held some sort of potency they seem to have it makes them quite intimidating to pick up yeah absolutely almost as if that they're going to be difficult to read on account of quite how good they are that somehow you won't be able to get enough from it that it will be somehow incomprehensible to you or I don't know if that's the same sort of feeling and maybe I mean I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about those big tomes you know like Ulysses and the Magic Mountain or maybe Dick those kind of things mm, okay it's something it's something indescribable I think some idea that you have that this these books become like holy objects or something that you 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 know that that, that reading them is going to be a special experience and you sort of you want that to be as perfect as possible maybe that sounds a bit mad i don't know no no i think yeah i think i can definitely appreciate that and that also that you want to be able to give it the time or the attention that it deserves and sometimes it doesn't always feel like you can do that when actually in truth you just need to start reading <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I spent a lot of my time while I was in England over over Christmas trying to track down this Martin Secker, I think it's 1927 edition of The Hill of Dreams, this really beautiful like green cloth bound edition of it. And I was looking in any bookshop I could find. I was in Arundel and Portsmouth and every bookshop I know in London, but I couldn't find a copy. I just wanted to make... <laughs> I just wanted to make this one special somehow. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I should say, all, all that, really, without knowing too much about the subject of this book, other than it, it had something to do with the transfiguring power of nature and landscape in this fictional Welsh town. And I suppose I was expecting something along the lines of what I'd already read by Macken. I've read the Tartarus collection of his supernatural tales, which has some of his most famous stories, The, the Great God Pan, and the inmost light novel of the white powder and so on have you read those rob just the novel of the white powder but quite a long time ago yeah what how, what was your impression of it did you bring that to what you were expecting of this i really yeah i mean i really really enjoyed that 
at the time and it was at a point when I was reading a lot of kind of similar fiction I suppose and in a weird way that sort of not put me off but I had a certain reticence going into it that I thought the book was going to be something that it wasn't and so I was very pleasantly surprised I was constantly expecting for some for this revelatory event of the book which never really happens and I like that a lot that it never really happens but yeah it's I mean it took almost to the end of the book before I realized that this wasn't gonna happen yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. so certainly certainly I brought that to the book and um, I think it really it really impressed me there's something this stylistic shift I suppose yeah it's something very different isn't it I mean those stories that we've mentioned although they're sort of innovative and they bring folklore to a kind of sensationalist style and you know they're acutely distressing or horrific and uh, but they are they are very much sensationalist texts to my mind and they seem to have more in common with Arthur Conan Doyle and H.G. Wells and Stevenson that kind of thing albeit with the, the darkness turned up several notches than they do with this highly sort of poetic tone that we find in in this novel. I mean there's an enormous amount of subtlety I think going on here even if at times the content even the style isn't necessarily obviously subtle taken as a whole I think there's an enormous amount going on different registers which yeah takes quite a lot of unpicking so yeah I think I would say definitely I agree with that it's extremely slow and measured and you realize straight away when you start reading it you know as you're greeted by these sort of very beautiful extended and sinuous descriptions of the landscape in this tangled like winding prose they're sort of knotty and earthy sentences somehow mm. it's the best way i can find to describe it but you you realize very quickly you're in for for a different kind of book but that that was really pleasing to me yeah me too i was kind of happy to slow down and take the book at its own pace but you're right it's it's not easy at all i found for me that it, it required a certain kind of attention and focus that i almost had to I almost had to be in the right mood to open the book yeah i would completely agree i do a lot of my reading in the evenings and i had to kind of switch that slightly because i was finding that i couldn't always concentrate or couldn't give it the fullest of attention think you know you definitely come across whole pages of text with no paragraph breaks and to do one after another can sometimes <laughs> start to you know feel like it's a bit of a trudge and you don't because the, the the language is so so beautiful as you say yeah there's like a an ornate quality to it that's really so so fantastic but can be slightly overwhelming at times like really like quite difficult to to stick with for a for a long period of time if you're feeling a bit tired yeah i suppose the way that plot or any sense of plot recedes into the background for the most mm. part uh, makes it difficult at times to feel that you have something to to cling on to i read this contemporary review from the year it was published and it it, it starts with this this line it says uh, this is the study rather than the story of a morbid or exceptional temperament and it really is like that i think mm. it's it's not it's not a story you know this in some ways this book couldn't be less interested in plot that's another thing that i sort of tend to turn to literature for i don't necessarily t turn to it for events and plot but you know i'm 
generally more interested in in atmosphere. I was reading this book by Quentin S. Crisp called The Paris Notebooks, written over 12 years ago now, but published quite recently. And he, he says something quite interesting about the overrepresentation of plot in fiction. And it, this passage really struck me. I mean, maybe you think this is slightly vociferous, Rob, but let's, let's see. <laughs> he says, action is boring and events for the most part are boring. This becomes very clear indeed when one attempts to keep a diary of any sort, jot down the events of the day, and really, as bare facts, who would ever care or find meaning in them? What matters in life, since the fact is we never happen upon the big event that we want, that somehow places us at the centre of the universe, what matters then in life is texture, atmosphere and so on. This is all that is left to us. We must enjoy ambience, or we must go to war out of boredom one or the other (laughs) (laughs) that's very good yeah it kind of encapsulated for me the kind of writing that we find in in the hill of dreams you know that that cherishes a sort of inward rapture it's you know very little happens in in the book you could summarize the the plot of it in a few sentences couldn't you yeah 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 yeah, absolutely and i think yeah whilst i maybe wouldn't wholly agree with the quote from quentin crisp as a as a kind of like ideological standpoint for all literature um oh no um, no but i should add that maybe uh i'm not sure 10 years later he would feel exactly the same about that but uh, anyway sorry but i do like it a lot as a quote and i think it yeah as you say it, it describes this book fantastically well that yeah there's a amazing moods that kind of shift shift through the writing and an attention to detail which is which is incredible and there's a, a kind of macroscopic view constantly of these very small scale i mean you can't even really call them events that are somehow blown up into these moving tableaus i suppose but in truth very little has happened it's all inward isn't it really it's very yeah. sort of uh, although there's there's an emphasis on landscape, it's very much about the perception, a subjective perception of it, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like hugely based in the senses and the crossover of that, whether that's in Welsh countryside or in London. And I think it's yeah, amazing for it. It captures equally well the the kind of beauty and horror of the of the countryside and the beauty and horror of the of the city better than an awful lot that I've ever read. I think. So I've been quite reliant for these biographical details on the Friends of Arthur Macken website. You know, if you want more detail, you can you can go to that website. It's arthurmacken.org.uk. He's born in 1863 in Caerleon. I think I'm not sure exactly how you how you would pronounce that. I've heard Caerleon, Caerleon, um, in the county of Gwent. And his father is an Anglican priest. Quite famously, Macken claims that it's the landscape of his childhood that endowed him with his capacity for awe and, and wonder and that, that that landscape was a, an enduring influence on, on his writing for throughout his career. And I think that's that's very clear in, in The Hill of Dreams, isn't it? It seems absolutely fundamental to the to the novel. Also the the area that he grew up in has many sites from the Roman occupation. And in the eighteen seventies when Macken was a, a young boy lots of archaeological studies were being made and i think he was excited about that yeah he's a very promising scholar but like lucian 
in the Hill of Dreams, uh, his parents lack the money to send him to Oxford, and so he takes up a career supposedly as a as a journalist and and moves to London in the 1880s, living in very strained conditions apparently, but not exactly devoting himself to journalism as he'd, he'd promised to do, but instead reading very widely and wandering the the streets of London. Again, I think the parallels with with Lucian are very clear there. He publishes his first book in 1884, The Anatomy of Tobacco. I'm quite curious about that book, and it's something we've talked about before, actually, on this podcast, of that, that genre of the of the anatomy that seems almost kind of gone from from the literary landscape somehow. When we talked about The Living Mountain, we thought about that book as almost like an anatomy of the mountain. He marries Amy Hogg in 1887, by which time both of his parents are dead. He produces several translations from the old French, which are quite well received, I think, but it's only with the publication of The Great God Pan that he begins to receive some real recognition. And I don't know that it's the kind of recognition he was very happy with. I think the publication of The the Great God Pan is a bit of a scandal and is kind of regarded as an immoral text and, and maybe even something satanic. But it is admired by Oscar Wilde and he becomes quite closely associated with the decadent movement. And we can think about whether that was sort of against his against his wishes to some degree a bit later. He begins work on the the Hill of Dreams in the 1890s. Again, I think that's something maybe we can think about this this work as a sort of product of the 1890s, but it isn't published until 1907, by which time he's over 40. The Oscar Wilde trial kind of throws the decadent movement into disrepute and he doesn't at all appear to wish to be associated with it but a lot of his literary connections and his publishers are are so heavily associated with it that he's almost enmeshed in that kind of literary circle and and finds it difficult to maybe find a voice outside of it. In 1899, his wife Amy dies of cancer. As a result, he has a breakdown, but he's helped through by his friends, and I think it's around this stage that he joins the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So yeah, there's a lot more I could say, but I want to keep it fairly brief with the biography. I mean, I would direct listeners, if they're interested, to... Um, the various biographical studies of, of Mac and there's one by Mark Valentine and there's another composed by John Gawsworth have you heard of him Rob John Gawsworth uh, no it's not someone I know it's like an, another one of these figures that haunts the peripheries of the weird and he turns up in books by Javier Marias. He actually composed this biography while Macken was still alive, even though Macken sort of several times kind of pleaded with him not to do it. Uh, I think he might have even called it a kind of literary suicide. <laughs> it's not the kind of conventional biography you'd expect to read, but it is one of the first-hand accounts that, that we have, and that's just been published by Tartarus Press. Okay. Yeah, and then there's also the Friends of Arthur Macken page that you can go to as well. But I thought I'd sort of stop the end of the 1890s because there's a lot to think about I think with his connections with decadent movement and so on and then he began to dream to let his fancies stray over half-imagined delicious things, indulging a virgin mind in its wanderings. 
the hot air seemed to beat upon him in palpable waves, and the nettle sting tingled and itched intolerably, and he was alone upon the fairy hill, within the great mounds, within the ring of oaks, deep in the heart of the matted thicket. Slowly and timidly he began to untie his boots, fumbling with the laces, and glancing all the while on every side at the ugly misshapen trees that hedged the lawn. Not a branch was straight, not one was free, but all were interlaced and grew one about another, and just above ground, where the cankered stems joined the protuberant roots, there were forms that imitated the human shape, and faces and twining limbs that amazed him. Green mosses were hair, and tresses were stark in grey lichen, a twisted root swelled into a limb. In the hollows of the rotted bark, he saw the masks of men. His eyes were fixed and fascinated by the simulacra of the wood, and could not see his hands, and so at last, and suddenly it seemed, he lay in the sunlight beautiful with his olive skin, dark-haired, dark-eyed, the gleaming bodily vision of a strayed fawn. Quick flames now quivered in the substance of his nerves, hints of mysteries, secrets of life passed trembling through his brain, unknown desires stung him, as he gazed across the turf and into the thicket, the sunshine seemed really to become green, and the contrast between the bright glow poured on the lawn and the black shadow of the brake made an odd flickering light, in which all the grotesque postures of stem and root began to stir, the wood was alive. The turf beneath him heaved and sank, as with the deep swell of the sea. He fell asleep, and lay on the grass in the midst of the thicket. He found out afterwards that he must have slept for nearly an hour. The shadows had changed when he awoke. His senses came to him with a sudden shock, and he sat up and stared at his bare limbs in stupid amazement. He huddled on his clothes and laced his boots, wondering what folly had beset him. Then, while he stood indecisive, hesitating, his brain a whirl of puzzled thought, his body trembling, his hands shaking, as with electric heat, sudden remembrance possessed him. A flaming bush shone red on his cheeks, and glowed and thrilled through his limbs. As he awoke, a brief and slight breeze had stirred in a nook of the matted boughs, and there was a glinting that might have been the flash of sudden sunlight across shadow. And the branches rustled and murmured for a moment, perhaps at the wind's passage. He stretched out his hands, and cried to his visitant to return. He entreated the dark eyes that had shone over him, and the scarlet lips that had kissed him. And then panic fear rushed into his heart, and he ran blindly, dashing through the wood. So I thought it would be interesting to think about some of the connections this book has with the literary movements of its, its period. I'm going to rely quite heavily on um, a recent publication. This is a book, a sort of collection of some of Arthur Macken's occult and decadent works, and it's edited by Denis Denisov. It was published just last year by the Modern Humanities Research Association. And, I don't know, it seems to me that The Hill of Dreams has elements that belong to sort of 
decadence and aestheticism and and symbolism you know it seems to sort of occupy a, a space on the border between all of these things mark valentine in his introduction to the tartarus press edition he refers to this remarkable fourth chapter as the purest attainment of symbolist prose in fantasy britain i mean i know we had different feelings about that chapter <laughs> but we can talk about that later yeah yeah yeah. although it sort of stands between all of these movements it does seem to does seem to occupy a space of its own as a sort of strange masterpiece with qualities that i haven't seen in any of any of the books that i've read from that that period but i think it is important to recognize that it's very much a product of the 1890s and that that decade is very famous for producing so much of the literature we now refer to as decadent yeah it's the decade of the famous journal the yellow book which is so strongly associated with aestheticism and and decadence and although macken never appeared within its pages um it seems to me that the hill of dreams is permeated by that that cultural moment even though it would it wouldn't be published until 1907. Macken is, yeah, very sort of disparaging about about the 90s. You know, he refers to those 90s of which I was not even a small part, but no part at all. But uh, Denisov, in this introduction to the, the collection, is quite good on sort of arguing the fact that regardless of whether he wishes to be associated with it or not, and maybe he can't be blamed for not wishing to be considering the ridicule that was heaped upon it regardless of this his literary associations and his publishers his admirers his circle of acquaintances make it impossible not to see it not to see him as part of it you know when you think about his most famous publications they they come out in this in john lane's keynotes series and the books have covers by aubrey beardsley of course very strongly associated with this this movement you can see those those covers if you look online they're very beautiful and they're clearly similar in style to the covers of, of the yellow book as well i mean i ordinarily wouldn't spend so much time thinking about which movement it belongs to you know I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that those borders that you impose upon literary history are not always particularly helpful at a certain point but i feel as though reading this book that macken is kind of constructing almost quite consciously a kind of archetype of of the artist a kind of vision of the of the artist a picture of this visionary does it, do you feel the same way rob yeah, yeah yeah i definitely think so i also think that the book is kind of littered with these references like more or less explicitly to decadence and, and symbolism which aren't necessarily references to the kind of like formal movements but perhaps suggest that this is writing that's very aware of what's going on but places itself not in one camp or another i think that's fair to say I've, like it feels like it, it moves through quite a lot of sort of stylistic modes very purposefully and in, in, in a kind of very sure-footed way that it feels it must it must be intentional these things are, are kind of picked up and and used almost in lucian's kind of like evolution and that it, it somehow comes comes together towards the end or like a something something for me anyway in this the final chapter becomes even more forceful and and there's a, like a, a change in pace that feels like lots of things have been developed through the course of the book and then in the course of lucian's short life that that really come to a head there so i don't know if that kind of fits with your idea of this the kind of development of this archetype within the book as well i suppose i'm thinking of lucian's preoccupations you know as as sort of representative of of certain things certain 
features of, of decadence, his preoccupation with the occult and with paganism, and the very sort of concrete way in which he almost sacrifices himself to to art refuses to play the game of life in any in any sense mm. you know he he's he's constantly told by those around him that he should pursue a profession with more you know pecuniary motives or or something that would afford him as a certain status in society rather than plunge him into these low circumstances that he finds himself as a, as an artist but it couldn't be of less interest to him at all. I, I suppose what you're talking about is really interesting, though, the, the way that the book shifts between styles and, and sometimes parts of it feel alien to the depiction of Lucian somehow. I'm thinking of these moments that, that feel like social satire. Basically, when anyone else, when any other characters are involved yeah. and, they're, <laughs> and they are depicted beyond Lucian's sort of obscure vision of them, they almost feel out of place, the, these sections. I did find them at points really hilarious and um, it's a kind of light relief at times. But yeah, absolutely, they've, they they don't necessarily sit within. You know, often you will have parts of chapter that will almost seamlessly move from Lucian's like, extremely intense engagement with the landscape around him and then move into a kind of country fair where the Lord is visiting. And yeah, it's a very, very strange. Yeah, I don't know. I was kind of interested in this to what extent this was kind of pushing at the boundaries of, of what these movements meant. There's like a, a passage where Lucian self-describes as decadent, and I don't think necessarily what's going on here is, is a kind of decadent uh, in a literary way. Uh, no, also yeah. this point. But, but it is very interesting, I think, because actually the reason he describes himself as degenerate and decadent is because of, of how he reacts in one of these psychosexual encounters that kind of litter the book where he basically sort of doesn't conform to the idea of masculinity that is going on at the time yeah it says you know he was degenerate decadent and the rough rains and blustering winds of life which a stronger man would have laughed at and enjoyed were to him hailstorms and fire showers there's a for me i think like a really interesting subtlety you know there's obviously an awful lot of decadence there in, yeah, as you say, these kind of like occult pagan themes. But there's also something really interesting that goes on with what is expected of Lucian at a, like a social level and what the kind of decadence of a rejection or, or an inability to live up to that would be. That kind of puts it maybe outside the traditional scope of decadence in that it's not de- it's not so deliberately confrontational, but it does follow the same logic. Like it's really pushing the boundaries of of these kind of styles or, or genres that are kind of melding in the book. And I yeah I find that that really interesting. But I don't yeah I don't quite know how that sits with this kind of archetype of the artist. Whether that's a, a comment on some of these stylistic things being too too restrictive or whether it's actually just Macken writing how he wants in a you know in a, in a way that he believes the book should be written I don't it's really hard to know exactly what's going on here yeah it can get quite tangled I suppose you know because you, you do have Lucian decrying popular tastes you know and 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 stating that if he if he wished to construct something like I think is Romola is that the uh, yeah. example he uses something that would quench literary taste he could do so but, but that he's actually searching for something much more transcendental you know i think i think the use that 
you know, you mentioned that he actually uses that term decadent in the book. And I suppose he means its first meaning of sort of morally degenerate or something. But also, you know, it would be impossible for Macken not to be aware of the... Yeah, the sort of, of literary significance of that word, you know, so closely associated with all these figures that have been identified that way. Is there something playful about his usage of that of that word? And by turn, is there is there something playful about his depiction of Lucian as as this visionary? That's something I found very difficult to determine, and, and we we talked about it a little bit. But um, but do you think there is any ironic distance between? Macken and his subject as, as there is between perhaps you know Joyce and Stephen Dedalus or even Goethe and and Werther perhaps whom Lucian reminded me of in in some ways what did you imagine about that did you think it was quite straight or no I think I think absolutely that there's this kind of ironic distance I found the the character of the father really interesting that he's simultaneously this man who can't be surprised that knows all of the young Lucian's walks when he thinks he's discovered this incredible pagan energy in the the, um in the Roman fort but his father just not even dismissively but he's just like well I know that's there yeah yeah (laughs) and at the same time when Lucian's kind of first attempt at writing is rejected but then actually stolen by the publishers that he's he's sent it off for and he reacts to that in this like almost unbelievably humble way that he says well you know that's fine it happens uh you know seems not too bothered about it and his father is awestruck almost by his sons the fact that he's not angry or i sort of wonder whether this is i mean not that actually Macken sees himself as the father then he has written himself into the book mm. but maybe there's something more there that there's this simultaneous the figure of Lucian is is somehow looked upon as as a kind of like right-minded but perhaps slightly innocent perhaps slightly foolish but at the same time has these these real qualities that Macken perhaps might have aspired to especially I guess considering where where Lucian's life goes and and his fatal <laughs> dedication to to these ideals that obviously aren't echoed in in Macken's life I wonder because he, he certainly uh, I mean this is very much jumping to the end of the book but um, the way it ends it doesn't seem to be chastising Lucian as, as foolish or made some huge mistake to have followed this this kind of way of being or this vision through to a kind of fatal end. I don't know if you felt that that was there or if... Um... If you can see it as a kind of warning against mm. overindulgence in, in art, you yeah. know, that's, that's kind of what made me think of Goethe because, you know, Goethe kind of distanced himself from that that figure you know after these copycat suicides and so on mm. and that that figure has been interpreted as you know what <laughs> what can happen to you if you read too many books or <laughs> yeah. you know if you're too <laughs> devoted to a, to a romantic ideal and lucian's overdose could be interpreted that way you know his his visionary disposition becomes quite entangled with drug use later in in the novel and so it might be possible to allow art and intoxication to kind of mm. become part of the same thing and also remembering i suppose that although macken is over 40 when when the book is finally published he's much closer in age to lucian at the time of its writing it was written between i think 1895 and 
1897 but then there are also yeah little distinctions that are made you know a, a tiny detail would be where he places Lucian in London compared to where he actually lived you know it's not uh, a great distance but there is a distinction there I think there is a possible reading of it like that but it's not what I it's not what I came away with at all I think those visionary moments are so so intoxicating for the reader that I think sometimes they are written without ironic distance you know it seems Macken is actually trying to to channel something Anthony Kamara I read an essay by him called Abominable Transformations it's a weird article it's it's deals almost exclusively with fungal imagery in the hill of dreams <laughs> which actually is not something that, that jumped out to me immediately but it is no, it is no, quite interesting <laughs> um he he actually addresses this and he says it would be easy to interpret the novel as a tale that explores the dangers of following a decadent ethos of composition that recommends sensory derangement and ego dissolution for the sake of art the last 80 pages of the work descend into the maelstrom of Lucian's drugged and dying brain, coupling the act of fictional composition with a progressive decomposition of reality. And he goes on to say that th- these details can distract us from what lies at the heart of Macken's fictional enterprise, which is the metaphysical status of mystical experience and, sub- and subjective vision. I mean, to me, that that is the core of it, kind of tran- transcendental mode of viewing the world i feel as though it is a kind of ideal for macken mm. that as much as all of lucian's efforts to get close to it either sort of spiritually or through art although they're failures i don't feel that for macken they were sort of foolhardy attempts at all and actually it feels to me much more of a tragedy at the end when you you realize just how much of a failure it has been the distance maybe becomes, for me anyway, smaller and smaller as the as the book goes on. Lucian becomes slightly, you know, the the aspects of his character that might be slightly ridiculous in the the opening few chapters sort of fall away. And I was really interested in Macken's own introduction to the book, where he writes about the the kind of critical reception to the three imposters and how one of the criticisms was that he kind of writes in. Stevenson's voice or that it's very much after Stevenson and then writes that this will be something you know his his aim when he sets out to write this is to write something in his own voice and then writes about the composition of the book and how he kind of mulled over the idea for months seemingly before putting pen to paper walking in the streets of London and that's obviously very much what happens towards the end of the book with Lucian whether it kind of represents an ideal that perhaps Macken realises that if it was taken to its logical conclusion would be fatal or uh, would would be impossible to, to realise. But this book perhaps gives him a way of, of kind of producing something close to that without actually suffering the same fate as Lucian. The, for me, the, the stylistic kind of pinnacle that's reached in the final chapter is is really amazing maybe comes quite close to some of the things that are put down by Lucian as his aims earlier in the book he saw the true gold into which beggarly matter of existence may be transmuted by spagyric art a succession of delicious moments, all the rare flavours of life concentrated, purged of their lees, and preserved in a beautiful vessel. The moonlight fell green on the fountain and on the curious pavements, 
and in the long sweet silence of the night he lay still and felt that thought itself was an acute pleasure to be expressed perhaps in terms of odour or colour by the true artist. And he gave himself other and even stranger gratifications. Outside the city walls between the baths of the amphitheatre was a tavern, a place where wonderful people met to drink wonderful wine. There he saw the priests of Mithras and Isis and of more occult rites from the east, men who wore robes of bright colours and grotesque ornaments symbolising secret things. They spoke amongst themselves in a rich jargon of coloured words, full of hidden meanings and the sense of matters unintelligible to the uninitiated, alluding to what was concealed beneath roses and calling each other by strange names. And there were actors who gave the shows in the amphitheatre, officers of the legion who had served in wild places, singers and dancing girls, and heroes of strange adventure. The walls of the tavern were covered with pictures painted in violent hues, blues and reds and greens jarring against one another and lighting up the gloom of the place. The stone benches were always crowded. The sunlight came in through the door in a long bright beam, casting a dancing shadow of vine leaves on the further wall. There, a painter had made a joyous figure of the young Bacchus driving the leopards before him with his ivy staff and the quivering shadow seemed a part of the picture. The room was cool and dark and cavernous, but the scent and the heat of the summer gushed in through the open door. There was ever a full sound with noise and vehemence there, and the rolling music of the Latin tongue never ceased. definitely feels like there's a disquiet or a, a disapproval of contemporary morals perhaps in as much as they kind of formulate themselves in what is what is proper especially in this kind of like middle class upper middle class society it feels very much like um, something that pushes against that both literally in, in the way that Lucian describes his realisation that he can actually transform these people almost out of existence within his mind but then also yeah very much in in the cultural output that this book represents i suppose thinking of it like that might be why this metaphor of transmutation keeps cropping up you know it keeps coming back and he seems to think about the transformation of reality in in alchemical terms in in very specifically sort of occult terms so there's this idea that what he's engaged in is is a kind of dark practice there's this passage here hold on uh, it says he had read a book of modern occultism and remembered some of the experiments described the adept it was alleged could transfer the sense of consciousness from the brain to the foot or hand he could annihilate the world around him and pass into another sphere lucian wondered whether he could not perform some some such operation for his own benefit human beings were constantly annoying him and getting in his way was it not possible to annihilate the race, or at all events to reduce them to wholly insignificant forms? A certain process suggested itself to his mind, a work partly mental and partly physical, and after two or three experiments, he found to his astonishment and delight that it was successful. Here, he thought, he had discovered one of the secrets of true magic. 
This was the key to the symbolic transmutations of Eastern tales. If we think about what he's doing as a kind of dark practice, one that society doesn't approve of, or one that is arcane, esoteric, I think it becomes perhaps even more possible to read what is being described here as not just some sort of spiritual or ritualistic process, but I don't know, am I insane to suggest that this is possibly already describing drug use at, at this stage yeah no i think it definitely it's it's very very difficult you know by the end it's very clear that there is kind of like um lucian is using opium we assume or yeah some some particular drug but it's really difficult to know quite how far back this goes whether it is at this point or whether the the desire for what the drug will eventually give exists here and he's you know attempting different methods to achieve the same ends is yeah it's really hard to know but yeah i would i would completely agree that there's if not narcotic intoxication there is absolutely a kind of desire for intoxication there if we're being sort of technical i think there's no mention or no description of him actually ingesting opium Mm. or laudanum at any point in the book i think it's alluded to several times in chapter six towards the end of the book i think it mentions that he he always had that thing at hand that he could turn to for release and then right at the end of chapter six there's this this little description there was the little bottle on the mantelpiece a bottle of dark blue glass and he trembled and shuddered before it as if it were a fetish worship and religious feeling and the use of laudanum are kind of being blurred into into one i think there but running through the text are all these allusions and uh, references to literary texts that deal with opium dream visions you know right at the beginning we have de quincey's confessions of an english opium eater i think that's mentioned in the first chapter right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and there are references to Tennyson's The Lotus Eaters and then obviously there are quotations from Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge you know, famously composed in an attempt to capture in poetry the, the reveries of this opium-fueled dream vision. Maybe even that, thinking about it now, has has some parallels with this text because, you know, Kubla Khan was published, you know, it's debated whether this is actually, whether the story that accompanied the poem is, is actually true. Um, mm. But it's regard. It was published as a kind of fragment. This attempt to to recapture what he experienced that was interrupted as a man from Porlock arrived to discuss something with him. That sense of failure or the fragmentary something that is almost attained but not quite that, that we find in this book. I think it's also quite early on that we start to have people discussing Lucian's appearance. He's wandering around in uh, Kaya Mine looking as though he's drunk or you know and his eyes are glazed people begin to worry about him i just wonder if all of this can be attributed to to the um, opium addiction beginning at a much earlier stage of the novel than we're actually privy to yeah i think absolutely something that's kind of marked out for us in the text and is is definitely there as yeah as you say from from the first chapter and there's yeah there's there's certainly certainly something going on i mean there's a real desire obviously to to escape or to veil to in some way alter his surroundings and so yeah i think it's it's you know it's quite plausible to suggest that it it starts far earlier than it becomes explicit definitely what do you make of this early passage i think it's the first climb he makes up the the hill to the site of this roman fort and he meets well he's he's a young man at that stage 
and I don't think there can be much question of drug use. I think he's maybe a teenager. And we get this incredible passage where he's walking through the woods to now stand on that on the site of that Roman fort and and has this yeah I think you called it sort of psychosexual communion with a, f- a fawn uh, I'll just read the passage because it's, it's really nice actually there were forms that imitated the human shape and faces and twining limbs that amazed him green mosses were hair and tresses were stark in grey lichen a twisted root swelled into a limb In the hollows of the rotted bark he saw the masks of men. His eyes were fixed and fascinated by the simulacra of the wood, and he could not see his hands, and so at last, and suddenly it seemed, he lay in the sunlight, beautiful with his olive skin, dark-haired, dark-eyed, the gleaming bodily vision of a strayed fawn. So he first sees himself as this fawn, and then later refers to the fawn as a visitant, right, who who kisses him. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then even later still, there's a point where he describes more explicitly, I suppose, that doubling when he talks about his memory of it. It's a, a vision of two forms. There was like a, a fawn with tingling and prickling flesh where expected in the sunlight, and there was also the likeness of a miserable, shamed boy standing with trembling body and shaking unsteady hands. And then, yeah, it goes on to say, you know, it was all confusion, a procession of blurred images, now of rapture and ecstasy, now of terror and shame. And it seems, yeah, this... this for me, anyway, it's something that I, I didn't read too much about in kind of some of the secondary literature I was reading here, but is is such an important or s- such a clear strand that runs through the book that I could never quite work out what it was doing. Um, was, yeah, this, this kind of psychosexual, this encounter that's then kind of almost repeated again and again, this this moment of attempts to, to kind of like give oneself up to ecstasy or, or for desire really I guess we're talking about but then shame and they're kind of pulling back and uh, definitely it's it's quite explicit at points that um, Lucian chooses to pull back into his own imagination rather than to kind of go through with uh, operations of desire I mean this this passage here is is really really very beautiful and it sets up time and again these these encounters that then of course finish the book as well but I was interested did you was it something you'd you'd read much about or had had thoughts on in terms of what this what this was part of me wanted to think that it was the thing that was potentially driving some of the the kind of narcotic use but it felt that felt too easy and doesn't really sit with the kind of like stylistic literary drive of the work i mean i yeah i find it confusing i i was yeah curious to know what you thought or if, if you'd come across anything that addressed this directly well no i haven't in the secondary literature i've read on on this text i haven't seen it described in any kind of schematic sense really um Mm. i'm sort of glad about that you know it's one of these yeah it's one of these sort of quite ambiguous moments that seems to hold a lot of power in the text but i don't know i was sort of thinking of it as quite an interesting moment where there's a kind of division of self the fact that we first see lucian as the fawn and then the fawn as this separate entity and it happens at the moment when he has what seems to be the the first true glimpse of this splendor or glamour as as macken would put it of of the world beyond reality as it's generally understood and i thought that maybe in the figure of the the fawn 
which is already quite an ambiguous creature because it's sometimes sort of conflated with the satyr. There maybe is a, a suggestion there that there can be enchantment, but the communion with this other world will also be fraught with shame and danger and somehow linked to to sexual desire and excess mm. you know uh, if you think of the fawn and the satyr having different origins the fawn is sort of traditionally more more of a benign creature and associated with in- enchantment while the, the satyr is very much a creature of Dionysian excess sexual overindulgence and so on perhaps it, it could symbolize the I don't know the danger of, of giving in to desire like you know as you as you mm. talked about it i thought it was interesting that that maybe the two figures of annie morgan and the uh, the figure he calls i think how does he actually term her the auburn-haired woman yeah, this, or, yeah and i think the demon lover he refers to as a demon lover yeah. at a certain point as well that maybe these two figures are symbolic of that divide as well yeah i mean there's certainly not any clarity in my mind about what those things are but that was my sort of base interpretation of it no i think i think that's really good definitely i don't know if it's too far to go with the the there's a, a kind of masculine feminine split there which is i guess partly of its time definitely but somehow the feminine becomes tied in with something unknowable like simultaneously unknowable and desirable and and therefore strangely dangerous because to know it is to to give something up it seems like yeah after this first experience in the kind of like matted undergrowth of the uh, Roman fort that it's a struggle that constantly takes place within the book and this yeah the the sense of somehow a masochistic desire for this kind of female I mean not you know not any particular woman and I think this is even put quite explicitly within the within the book but yeah masochistic desire for some kind of feminine ideal the, uh, I do wonder how the public took this very strange passage where he begins to talk about his infatuation with Annie, who actually is is not there. She's you know left the town, she's gone somewhere that isn't properly explained. That he then you know takes to lying on a bed of thorns every night until blood rushes down his thighs. You know this is um, for kind of like <laughs> like nineteenth century. This is it feels quite I don't know like um, I, I wonder how people would have taken this. Yeah, it's in- it's interesting, isn't it? Because it does seem sort of outside of all kind of propriety, but then mm. uh, but it echoes very straightforwardly the sort of in the Catholic tradition the mortification of the flesh, mm. but the detail with which it's described is quite lurid, isn't it? And maybe somehow even it's uh, it's even more shocking in that it it takes these elements of the extreme asceticism or the you know the extreme debasement of christianity although it is worth i guess saying that the the christianity that he seems to mock in this kind of welsh middle class society is definitely very much anglican right yeah absolutely uh, one, uh, yeah yeah, yeah and, is, and he yeah. talks he talks quite fondly seemingly of catholic rites and even this this point at the kind of emergence of christianity the the kind of crossover of of pagan and early christian practices yeah but i was going to say yeah maybe that there's something almost even more shocking about taking this thing which is meant to be the the point of ultimate devotion within christianity but then the thing that is being worshipped is in fact this woman who is like a, a farmer's daughter yeah a farmer's daughter but with spectral mythical associations mm. you know even the name yeah. morgan in, in welsh mythology 
very concretely tied to the to the world of fairy right and is in in no way a, a, a fleshed out character it becomes a sort of ideal right well i mean did you think as i did that the moment when lucian meets her in the but you know meets her by moonlight and cries into her breast and so on i was expecting a more fully realized continuation of this aspect of the story you know perhaps Mm. a sort of deepening of the book's romantic flavor but it's really not what happens at all is it no 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 she disappears almost as soon as entering that it's because it's it's built up for you right in that you know they have this first meeting where he he is invited into the family home and tastes this cider and you know realize that she's grown into a very beautiful woman and then meets her again and yeah it's all it's really set for that quite traditional romantic flowering of of this relationship and yet as you say it it just doesn't happen at all yeah it's it's very strange i think you know that she's essentially just the the catalyst for his you know him following this this rabbit hole uh, even further you know the mortification of the flesh and this is when he starts to compose occult poetry which i think he describes as having no surface meaning you know it must be read as something that is codified or you know necessarily Mm. obscure when he learns that annie morgan has has married another he doesn't care right (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a bit, a bit like this, the publication of his book, you know. Uh, yeah, and what I was, I think, he even says that you know, were she to die, he would be upset, but only as much as if an acquaintance he knew had died. <laughs> and to think, you know, that the levels of rapture and devotion he's gone through as a purely internal process, and then actually she's been completely pushed out by what has become this kind of like internal world. You've sensed very, uh, very strongly that this is not her idea of devotion at all. Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. though she's not there to witness it. Yeah. You sense that she, she couldn't conceive of what he is up to. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not meant to be comical, but I, I thought that was quite quite comical. Yeah. There's something about the way you fly headlong into into your first idea of love. It was only by the intensest strain of resolution that he did not yield utterly to the poisonous anodyne which was always at his hand. It had been a difficult struggle to escape from the mesh of the hills, from the music of the fawns, and even now he was drawn by the memory of these old allurements. But he felt that here, in his loneliness, he was in greater danger, and beset by a blacker magic. Horrible fancies rushed wantonly to his mind. He was not only ready to believe that something in his soul sent a shudder through all that was simple and innocent, but he came trembling home one Saturday night, believing, or half-believing, that he was in communion with evil. He had passed through the clamorous and blatant crowd of the high street, where, as one climbed the hill, the shops seemed all aflame, and the black night air glowed with the flaring gas jets and the naphtha lamps, hissing and wavering before the February wind. Voices, raucous, claimant, abominable, were belched out of the blazing public houses as the doors swung to and fro and above these doors were hideous brassy lamps very slowly swinging in a violent blast of air so that they might have been infernal thuribles sensing the people some man was calling his wares in one long continuous shriek that never stopped or paused 
and as a respond, a deeper, louder voice roared to him from across the road. An Italian whirled the handle of his piano organ in a fury, and a ring of imps danced mad figures around him, danced and flung up their legs till the rags dropped from some of them, and they still danced on. A flare of naphtha, burning with a rushing noise, threw a light on one point of the circle, and Lucian watched a lank girl of fifteen as she came round and round to the flash. She was quite drunk, and had kicked her petticoats away, and the crowd howled with laughter and applause at her. Her black hair poured down and leapt on her scarlet bodice. She sprang and leapt round the ring, laughing in a bacchic frenzy and led the orgy to triumph. People were crossing to and fro, jostling against each other, swarming about certain shops and stalls in a dense dark mass that quivered and sent out feelers as if it were one writhing organism. A little farther, a group of young men, arm in arm, were marching down the roadway chanting some musical verse in full chorus so that it sounded like a plain song. An impossible hubbub a hum of voices angry as swarming bees, the squeal of five or six girls who ran in and out and dived up dark passages and darted back into the crowd. All these mingled together till his ears quivered. A young fellow was playing the concertina, and he touched the keys with such slow fingers that the tune wailed solemn into a dirge but there was nothing so strange as the burst of sound that swelled out when the public house doors were opened. In terms of inventing this Roman city, or really, really, Lucian kind of throws himself into the complete construction in his imagination of this other place replaces the, the kind of middle-class society that he obviously doesn't really want to be a part of. As you kind of mentioned, it was part of the book that I didn't enjoy so much, um, and I think it is very much personal preference. But there was part of me, I think, because where previously in the, in the book, for me anyway, the descriptions of this kind of pagan countryside and there's a kind of like a, a dense darkness to the writing which really reflects it. There's there's something bright and lucid and almost technicolour about the about the language or about the the way it's described. <laughs> and it just sort of put me in mind of like kind of bad like sixties and seventies historical films where everything's mm. <laughs> very bright and very clean and it's, you know, like a little bit carry on Roman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's probably quite unfair, but I just couldn't I couldn't get this image out of my mind. And so I sort of stopped enjoying that so much. Not because there was anything wrong with the way it was written. It's like written very beautifully. But then later on, when we moved from the, the Welsh countryside to London, I really, really loved it. Yeah, I guess we can talk more about why that might have been. But I had the realisation part of the way through that I was perhaps actually just doing the exact same thing as Lucian and that I was really fascinated living in London and kind of coming across this relic of the past. Perhaps my imagination isn't quite as good as Lucian's because I kind of needed the um I needed the road names and I need I needed the um, you know like the specifics to be able to transport myself back there. It's one of the most interesting historical descriptions of London I 
I think I've read, like really even more than bits of Conrad or something, like describes what London must have been like so so evocative and it's quite funny as well I think in that there's something very fond in this description I think is quite clearly written by someone that, that really lives there but it's also quite not necessarily snobbish but yeah there's a there's a disdain there but oh says, there is yeah yeah absolutely yeah. yeah 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 but it says the the wind blew the smoke from the chimneys into his face as he shut the door and with the acrid smoke came the prevailing odor of the street a blend of cabbage water and burnt bones and the faint sickly vapour from the brick fields. Mm. <laughs> I really love this. <laughs> the cabbage water and burnt bones. It's yeah. Like the, yeah. Real, the kind of the smell of despair somehow. Yeah. <laughs> These passages describing his walks through London are simultaneously fascinating as a historical document, but really spot on, I think, in, in terms of absolutely capturing like a, a way of life. I liked the imaginary... Uh, rebuilding of this Roman city much more than you, but I, I also really loved the the section in in London. It, stri- it strikes me that actually an essay that I read might be perfect for you, if you know from the way you, you described it. It's from a collection called The Library of the Lost, and the essay is called Lucian in the Labyrinth: London Locations in the Hill of Dreams. And essentially, it's just trying to establish precisely where. Uh, where he lives in West London, down to the very road, and what these buildings, and particularly the church that he mentions, is, and if they're still there, and so on. So maybe I can help you get hold of that, um, and yeah. so you can, yeah, yeah, you can have a look at great. that. But no, I think you're, you're right. There is a simultaneous fondness and disdain there's a disdain particularly it seems of of the working classes Mm. you know this odor of of boiled cabbage and so on that keeps coming up seems to be too robust for lucian's delicate constitution you know we we learn that he's living on what is it bread and black tea Mm. but no it is wonderfully evocative to read those descriptions of london do you think there's something to be said though for the fact that in the in the descriptions of this kind of welsh snobbery that he really despises these are also the points of social satire where as you've said and i think it's like absolutely right it it feels so disconnected from the rest of the book whereas here Although there's like a definite disdain, it also stylistically fits. You know, there's there's no kind of discord with the with the the way the book's progressing, and there's also something quite beautiful in the description of quite how awful it is. Mm. Um, the language for me reaches like a, a real pinnacle at, at this point, like a real relish, I guess. The way that these scenes of working class life are described, you know, there's the, I think, a description of a tavern. Mm. It's a tiny little moment, I think. He describes a, a young fellow playing a concertina. Yeah. And to his ears, it sounds like a, like a funeral dirge or something. And so you get simultaneous transmutation of those scenes into something into something higher as well. You know, there's there's a sense of being assailed by them but finding a kind of beauty in them as well i thought it was really interesting that in in that essay I, I mentioned the one about london locations roger dobson talks about um the sort of mirrorings between the first half and the second half of, of the novel actually roger dobson incidentally is the inspiration for a character in javier marias's book all souls uh, have you have you come across that rob 
No, no. Yeah, it's quite a strange moment in that book where a sort of eerie character who is a like a fervent collector of Macken's books comes to comes to visit the, the the protagonist and they have this little discussion about Macken. Yeah, anyway, it's based on this guy who who really did that, who really came to Javier Marius's house, learning that he was a collector of Macken books. But yeah, he points out quite a few things that that sort of repeat and a uh, sort of recapitulated in different form in the second half of the novel. You know, he mentions that in in Gwent, Lucian walks in fairyland. And in Notting Hill, he wanders in a nightmare. And although he seems sort of reluctant to offer out, offer a sort of fleshed out reading, lest it stray too close to the realm of literary criticism, which he seems sort of to have to have some kind of disdain for, he does he does refer to the hill in Notting Hill as being the kind of mirror image of the Welsh fort. And he goes on. He says the elements of the first half of the novel: the Roman city, the rectory, Lucian's illuminated manuscript, the tavern. Annie Morgan reappear in grotesque forms in the second part. The demon lover, and he's referring to the young girl whom Lucian encounters here, can be viewed as Annie Morgan's evil twin. And most obviously, the novel's opening sentence is reprised in the final line. This reading came in a, in a little footnote to that essay, which is not really the main topic of it, of it at all, but I was quite taken with it. And I, I think it's quite a compelling reading. I mean, particularly in reference to the the two dream visions, those twin climaxes somehow of the novel in, in chapters mm-hmm. four and seven. And I thought they were in, interesting in comparison in terms of Lu- Lucian's activity and passivity somehow. In chapter four, we're told that Lucian's journeys to Kaiamine and its neighborhood had a peculiar object. He was gradually leveling to dust the squalid kraals of modern times and rebuilding the splendid and golden city of Siluria. I think the the power in that description, I don't mean the power of the description, but the power that is attributed to Lucian is is really interesting. He's actually just destroying and rebuilding. He's sort of acting very, very concretely on on the landscape. It seems to be coming from him. You know, and in in these visions, the Roman settlement is sort of resurrected and he lives this enchanted life basking in the sun on the vineyards and he has a sort of fantasy villa and he drinks in the tavern served by these boys in white robes and there's lots of descriptions of the jewels and the opalescent cups and a real emphasis on on color as well i know that that you talked about that in the negative sense but i really like that Yeah, yeah 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 it seemed to me his senses are heightened they become more acute and there are all the also these scented women who engage in orgies and I, I thought it was a really remarkable piece of writing i was completely transported by it but i can understand why you didn't feel the same i mean i think perhaps it's just a you know like a slightly grumpy response i felt <laughs> perhaps like Mecken's having an awful lot of fun like really enjoying himself writing it and i yeah. probably should appreciate that more than more than i did there was just part of it that after a while i i felt turn me off a bit but i think it is very much personal personal preference rather than anything i could say you know a kind of like critical level why why i didn't enjoy that Mm. yeah i mean i sort of appreciated the fact that it was a fantastical 
um, mm. description, isn't it? It's not. I don't think he's trying to resurrect any a, a real Rome that, that really existed, yeah. or you know, yeah, real yeah, Roman yeah. settlement that really existed. There's no dirt. There's no grit. Like you said, everything is very clean and and perfect. And that seems to me sort of precisely how it would be in in Lucian's mind. Throughout that description in chapter four, there's this continual reference again to transmutation, that sort of motif that keeps coming back as a very sort of distinctly active strain in the in this visionary episode which i found very different to the kind of hellish visions in the final chapter where it feels like the external world is working upon him and that Mm. he's he's attacked by it he's assailed by it and rather than throwing this transfiguring veil over it it becomes begins to become like a burden to him i definitely find the idea of the kind of repetition from chapter four and chapter seven yeah really really compelling and it wasn't something i thought about too much before you mentioned it and then as soon as you mentioned it it seems so obvious but yeah this the the mirroring of the tavern is really interesting i think because just before the appearance of this this second you know annie's double uh, the second woman he talks about a kind of like brief look into the tavern and he you know describes these, these kind of like women pouring drinks down the the men's throats and the young children drinking whiskey and he says it was above all in the faces around him that he saw the most astounding things the bacchic fury unveiled and unashamed to his eyes it seemed as if these revellers recognised him as a fellow and smiled up in his face, aware that he was in the secret. Every instinct of religion, of civilization, even, was swept away. They gazed at one another and at him, absolved of all scruples, children of the earth and nothing more. And it seems to kind of slightly complicate the dichotomy of, of or yeah, this, I don't know, like a juxtaposition of one being pure and good and the other one being somehow tainted and evil because mm-hmm. he... He seems very drawn to that and there seems to be a kind of pagan simplicity that he would approve of, perhaps. And really interesting, I mean, he, he then, within this scene, sees this, this woman, this object of, of love, and he flees from her because he, he can't stand the thought of what would happen. So it's really hard to know exactly what's, what's going on there. But yeah, I don't know. It felt like it's not purely evil, n- not purely negative. Mm. The, it kind of like muddies the water slightly. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, it is very close to sort of hellish imagery. Mm. The way these naphtha lamps, you know, they're, they're tr- transfigured and they sort of illuminate the orgiastic dance that he's observing so that the figures become silhouettes. They become these mm. dusky figures and they're sort of bathed in, in red light. Which is interesting, very quickly, just to interject that that um again that that kind of doubling of the the natural red light of sunset that we see in yeah. wales again and again and then of course this because he makes a really, really big thing of that he never just says the light is always the the naphtha it's, you know he always makes it very very clear that it's that the artificial yeah, light yeah, that's yeah. happening in the city Ab- absolutely the case yeah it is it does at times feel sort of unbearably hostile to him you know that that the chapter opens with the sort of the buffeting of the wind you know rattling his his windows and it keeps coming back to this this furious wind the sounds become sort of discordant and abrasive and and chaotic but absolutely i think there is a degree of desire there and when you read that passage about them recognizing him as their fellows well he he at this moment is 
deeply under the spell of opium, presumably, you know, and it's mm. where this sort of obscurity of this chapter stylistically comes from, I think. It really demands a kind of close attention to get any clarity about what's going on, I think. So it's sort of simultaneously hellish imagery and some it feels like some kind of bacchic right you know it feels like uh dionysian indulgence that that he's he's been looking for in in his art maybe as well but there is a sense that it's now is now beyond his control there's no sense of him building this scene or projecting it or being able to destroy anything and put anything and put something in its place it is now the world acting upon him and i i I completely agree i think this section is just is so magnificent to reach that kind of pitch of language is such a contrast with the final paragraph we get in the book isn't it where the veil is lifted completely Mm, yeah 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 yeah, absolutely quite sort of horrible horrible daylight descends on yeah on his rooms you know um how did you react to that final moment rob yeah i mean you you know it's coming right because you you realize i guess or you have a a good realization yeah so chapter six ends with him looking up at this blue bottle and so you have an idea that something is going on and the, the kind of temporal shifts that happen and the the kind of pitch and pace that the language reaches throughout chapter seven you realize that perhaps something's going on and i think i certainly had assumed that that was probably what was you know this was the kind of last thoughts of a of a dying mind but yeah the um the landlady coming in and finding him and and the fact that the but is that the landlady ah i i think that's the i think that's the demon lover i think that's the the prostitute okay yeah yes because yeah her her hair is the way she lets down her hair is described as well i think and they've kind of planned it to take advantage of him somehow i see yeah okay yeah 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 yeah. and and they ensure that there is proof that he had taken this himself Uh, yes okay. the overdose is his fault and so on and you know there's going to be an inquest and uh, okay that complete yeah because it actually massively changes for me anyway this kind of strange juxtaposition or the the tension constantly between this masculine feminine or this kind of like desire because then seemingly perhaps what's happened is that he has given in to desire and it's killed him which is always what i thought but never quite so specifically that actually this this woman who earlier he describes as having having the head like a noble head like a statue turns out to actually be the um, the malevolent force that he perhaps feared all along so i'll ask you our our traditional final question rob how many shirts does arthur mackens the hill of dreams get maybe I'm between an eight and a nine. I mean, yeah, the final chapter, I think, was just so, so brilliant and, and would even almost work as, as a piece of writing on its, you know, like a novella on its own or a short story on its own. It was just amazing. There were points when, when I struggled through a bit uh, and that maybe knocks it down a bit for me. But yeah, it's really, really fantastic. Uh, what what about for yourself? This is off the scale for me, Rob. Uh, it's it's a solid ten, I think. I thought you were going to give it twelve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think this book just it deserves to be to be read much more than it is. I think. I mean, I mean, perhaps it does it does appear on some university courses and so on, but um, it's really not 
something that I hear mentioned too often and I think it's stylistically mature it's just absolutely beautifully written it's really rich to discuss it's it's just a very special book to my mind so yeah absolutely 10 shirts We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please get in touch with us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.